Hi, my name is Alan. I am the producer of the Courage to Lead interview series. I grew up in Australia, but my ancestors were first fleeters. I've learnt that this land is and always will be land cared for by the oldest Indigenous culture in the world, and that that land is and always will be Aboriginal land. Their culture is all about storytelling. So today I acknowledge the Darak people where this podcast is recorded and we extend our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I truly hope you enjoy today's story, which is someone's individual journey on how they traverse the challenges and the joys of becoming a leader. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, the Australian Ambassador for Gender Equality, Stephanie Copus Campbell AM. We have the honour of featuring Stephanie, a prominent advocate for gender equality, who is not only leading change in Australia, but is also making a remarkable impact on the global stage. Our guest, a dedicated advocate, works closely with Minister Penny Wong, and their mission is clear, advancing gender equality, both domestically and internationally. With a wealth of experience spanning a long and distinguished career, they have witnessed firsthand the transformative power of gender equality in every sphere of society. Our guest paints a picture of why gender equality is not just a matter of moral imperative, but also a strategic choice for nations and community. By bridging the gender gap, we unlock the full potential of all individuals, leading to happier families, healthier children, increased prosperity, and stronger and more peaceful societies. Tune in as our guest delves into the multifaceted nature of gender equality, or inequality, breaking down the barriers faced by women and girls across various sectors, from education and healthcare to the workforce. We'll explore the profound impact of gender norms and stigmas and the transformative efforts of dismantling them. Join us in this enlightening conversation as we learn how gender equality isn't just about empowering one gender, but about empowering everyone to reach their fullest potential. Stay tuned for an eye-opening discussion on how breaking down these barriers benefits us all, creating a brighter and more prosperous future for everyone. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, Stephanie Copus Campbell, AM, a, the current Australia's uh, ambassador for gender equality um, and all, doing all things all in regards to foreign policy around, around gender equality. So um, welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you, Alan. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> when I get, when I, um, when I saw some of what you did, I thought, my God, if, if she'll come on the show, um, it'd be lovely just for everyone to hear what you do do. So, um, uh, and when I look at your CV, like I, I will do an intro um, when I edit this, um, kind of listing some of your the, the, the list of stuff you have on your CV is quite, quite huge. Um, and we'll dare, dare say go into that as we talk to you today. So enough from me. Every guest on the show gets asked two questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first, um, the first question, um, Stephanie, is that what you prefer to be called, Stephanie or Steph? Um, Steph's good. Stephanie's good. Just uh, Steph rolls off the tongue a bit better, I reckon. So okay, yes. okay. <laughs> so, so Steph, um, 
what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be yesterday or it can be as a five-year-old or anywhere in between. <laughs> One of the, the last guests actually went back to, um, she was, um, I don't know whether you know her, Professor Cordelia Fine, um, uh, Delusions of Gender, uh, yep. the, 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 the lady that does all that kind of stuff um, around gender, gender diversity, and she went back to birth. Right. She, she set the standard, you know. Um, oh, my birth. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far, but I can go back to primary school because I do remember we um, had to pull together a, a, a school play with the choir and no one could get it together, and I decided that I wanted to be a director when I when okay. I grew up. So I, I self-appointed myself to be the director of this play and um, kind of stepped in and started bossing people around and learn some of those lessons. I think early on that the best way to get people to do what you want them to do is to have a bit more inspired leadership than, than you know, telling what they have to do, yeah. but working <laughs> with them to kind of um, ensure they're inspired um, to to work with you. So I, I, at the age of, I think it was about eight, managed mm -hmm. to organize our school play because it, it wasn't going well. And I thought I was one day going to be a, a movie director. So I decided to self-appoint myself as the director of that. Um, and I think through the School of Hard Knocks, learned a few good lessons early on about leadership and <laughs> how you kind of got people inside and got people offside. But we did get through our school play, and I'm, I'm not sure it was a spectacular play, but it was one that got performed. Um, and I think we were all playing together nicely at the end of it. So I must have I must have figured a few things out about how to get people together in, in an environment where things weren't working too well and um, um and learn a few things along along the way in terms of leadership. Um, can, can you so remember, that's a, that's an early memory. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you remember? It sounds pretty um in your brain in your in your memory bank. Can you remember? It is. How it you must got, be very what, formative in the sense that yes, it kind of shaped me early on and that some of those early leadership skills. But can you remember what you got wrong and how you you, you how you flipped it and got. And got uh, better pretty quickly. Well, I you know because I was reflecting on this, and I, I remember kind of that early engagement, um, just feeling I had to be pretty bossy going in, and you know that kind of um, yeah, that style of leadership where the boss is right and everyone else kind of follows on, and that doesn't particularly work when you're eight, and it doesn't no, particularly no. work when you're you know well my age now. <laughs> so I think um, I, I I do I was reflecting kind of on that as I looked at, at some of the questions I knew you were going to ask me and. Um, yeah thought through that, yeah, that was a pretty um, interesting experience at the age of eight to learn that the hard way. And I remember, well, as I reflect on it, that coming in and as Miss Bossy Boots at the age of eight, um, trying to get people to do what I wanted them to do didn't work too well. So, you know, but really thinking through, I mean, one of the things I really love about leadership is how you can work with people to inspire um the best in them right and yeah. um that's always done through creating that shared vision showing that you have their their participation in in the way in which they want their environment to roll um and working with them to to see together how you're going to achieve that and um i think i probably learned that at a young age that it doesn't <laughs> work to do it the other way very well no. so. That's pretty good. You did ask for an early memory. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Ones. There you go. <laughs> that's quite uh, it was somewhat one of the other guests talked about the skill play too. It was quite funny, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's funny, yeah. It's we where we where what holds our memory banks and where we learnt some of the lessons. So it's quite thank you for sharing something so 
So you know, I grew young. up in Alaska, though, of course. So I had we had some different experiences of of also just how you really need to work together as a community. Um, and also, if you you know, learning through the school of hard knocks, I'll tell you a really early memory. I just remembered because it was in the same the same time as the school play. I remember that. Um, Every year a kid would do this, but you go out. So I grew up in Alaska and on the playground with the swings, you had those metal poles, but in the winter they get quite shiny and, and mm. looking, you know, like they need to be licked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and when a small kid puts their, you know, you know, a warm tongue on the very shiny yeah. pole, it sticks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you have that choice of whether you pull it off and embarrass yourself or you go and get the teacher to come and pour the hot water over it. Um, really? And, um, oh, no, no, no. This happened yeah. every year. So you're kind of negotiating that way of of your pride versus your, <laughs> you know, your pain threshold. <laughs> yeah. Is it yeah. um, like I've, read, I've read a few books about Alaska. It's pretty tough, yeah. pretty unforgiving. So how, Canberra, yeah. how long were you there for? Oh, I grew up there. So my, my parents are still there. So I spent my my childhood there and right through high school and or secondary school and then I went to university in um, California I did my undergraduate degree in California and then graduate on, a bit on the east coast of America and then in England so I made my way to Australia from England I went to England to study um, the theory of international relations I ended up studying the practice as well and met this Australian and um, married him <laughs> 30 years ago so 30 yeah. years on the 6th of November yeah Oh, it's close to yeah, we're we're uh, married on the seventh of November. And there you go. So, yeah, you so go. it's very close. Yeah, very okay. good. Um, all right. So the second question then, and, and there's, I I can already see a lot of rabbit warrens that will go down um, with with who you are. But um, what's something about Steph that mm. no one knows? That's one that no one knows. Okay. Um. Well, I think I, yeah, I'm I'm the type of person who kind of. I'm a storyteller and I share a lot of my life, so I think probably most people know most things. Um, I I can parallel park perfectly. That is yeah. my secret super skill. Every yeah. time, get it right yeah. every single yeah. time. That that's a super secret super skill. Um, most people know this, but I'm um you know you know I'm a passionate um, wildlife carer. But growing up in Alaska. My father every year, and I, I'm a diehard vegetarian, I'll tell you right now, but yeah, my yeah, yeah. my father was um, a bush pilot and every year he'd go out with his mates and get a moose mm. and they would kind of share it. So I learned at a very early age how to field dress a moose. I can do that as well. That's another secret skill. Um, <laughs> I only use that now to take care of animals, not to hurt them, but yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was part of the survival in Alaska. They would stuff their freezers every year with this shared, the family would share the moose together and, um, you know, it was just part of living mm. in Alaska. Um, it's not something I would do now, but as a child, I grew up in that you environment. Yeah, so yeah, yeah that yeah. was um, important. Yeah. So I have that. I have that skill um, in a, a, that survival skill, maybe. But I would, being now a very um, focused animal um, care and rehabilitator, it's not something I I would do at this no, this no, stage. No. But it was part I of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. Um, it's funny. Similarities between uh, every, 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 every like sixty degrees of separation. My, my dad, I grew up. My dad's a butcher. Now uh, he's oh, yeah. he's died deceased now. But um, so I've grown up uh, three meals of meat a day. And then my our, our daughter, uh, she's twenty seven now. She um, she's uh, vegan, and she yeah. got me into that plant based um, about four years ago. So it's yeah. uh, uh, so I, I kind of get 
yeah, you're allowed to change. You're allowed to pursue what you want to pursue. So yeah. yes, yes. Now, when yeah. you can, you come and do what you do. But um, and that was the lifestyle in Alaska. It was very much my parents were much into subsistence living growing up. But um, as an adult, you do have a choice. So I, I'm, I'm, I've been a vegetarian most of my adult life. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, good on it. Good on it. Well, the rest of the interview is about you. Um, yeah. So, but I think it would be good to start with because um, you kind of like some of the other high level people we've had on the show it would be good to explain what your current role is and and, and what you do in that role and and, sure. then, and then behind that is your um, member of australia um is, uh, mm-hmm. so do you just want to tell us what um what you currently do now mm-hmm. who and who that's i, I didn't realize it was part of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Yes. Um, so just go into what you do now, what that yep. entails, who the, who's that's okay. with, and maybe the AM as well. Okay. So I'm Australia's lead advocate on gender equality. Um, and by that, I work out of our DFAT portfolio. Um, Minister Penny Wong, our Foreign Minister, is, oh, is wow. our minister. Yeah. So I work out of the DFAT portfolio, but I'm our lead advocate for gender equality internationally. That in my mandate very much flows for Australia's strong commitment to gender equality within Australia and um, something that, that's a very important aspect of our own society. So internationally, I work and engage at the multilateral level, at regional levels and bilateral levels on really um, a shared approach and understanding to why when every single person has every single opportunity to meet their full potential, everything is better. And, you know, I've seen that over the course of a very long career, that when you have equality in the home, um, it's a happier, more prosperous family, the kids are healthier, um, the income tends to be higher if both are drawing on, on their economic potential. When you have gender equality in the community, it tends to be a more um, peaceful, stable, prosperous community. When you have gender equality in the workforce and the private sector, the evidence is very clear. It Your profit um, and bottom line is affected in a very positive way. When a country has gender equality, they are more prosperous, and that just makes sense when you're drawing on the potential of 100% of your population, you're going to do better. And when we have more gender equality, more globally, um, we have more peace, we have more stability, we have more economic prosperity. You know, there's been a lot of research now to say that when you when you are able to close that economic gap between men and women, GDPs increase by billions and billions and billions of dollars. So we are all better off when we have equality. And by gender equality, and what I certainly promote is it's absolutely the right thing to do. It's a fundamental human right. Um, And again, as I noted, it's absolutely a strategic smart thing to do for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, But at the same time, I think it's really important for me to note that gender equality is about everyone able to reach the full potential. And when we take a lens to any one sector, in most cases, not all cases, but in many cases, um, women and girls will have greater barriers due to, for example, entrenched social norms of what maybe women would do in a household and what men would do in a workforce mm. or mm. Um, some of the entrenched norms about 
um, or, or, or views that might have come about due to things like leadership or whatnot. So because of those reasons, um, women and girls often have greater barriers than men and boys in reaching their full potential. They may experience higher levels of, of violence, for example. They may have less opportunities to get into the workforce um, or to get into education. They may have more barriers to getting health services, et cetera. But that's certainly not in every case, and I think that's important to note. When we take a gender lens to, um, for example, some of the um, education sectors like nursing or teaching, there may be social stigma that, that you know, a woman is a better nurse than a man and a man who wants to enter into nursing may feel there's some social stigma into early childhood. If you mm. look at accessing mental health services and perhaps some of the views around what, you know, men asking for help or women asking for help, um, it may be that it's harder for a male to access um, certain aspects of, of those services, et cetera. So it doesn't mean that there's always barriers just for women and not men or just for um, girls and not boys. It's looking at it in any one setting and understanding what the barriers are for any group based on a gender norm or gender perspective. Um, and when and how we lift those experiences, um, again, we're all better off. Well, because barriers, we're all better yeah. off. Wow, Steph, that's um, that's what I love about people at your level. Um, you kind of live, you live what you love, mm. and when you talk about it, like anyone listening to that, there, there was no ums or ahs. It was just this is what I do every day, so I can just talk <laughs> about it at, uh, off the top of my head at infinite at infinitum and passionately. So I'm, I must say, I must declare, I'm so jealous that you're working for Penny Wong because uh, she's one of the most um, considered leaders I've ever seen, how she mm -hmm. articulates, um, what could you say, uh, just a, a professional uh, gravitas way mm -hmm. of talking, even when she's probably pretty cranky, she doesn't, she <laughs> doesn't really, um, it's it's just, a, so to, to be, she, you report to her, that must be amazing. And, and for you to be the ambassador for gender equality reporting to her must be, says volumes about your skills. Yes, um, no, I, I feel very, very privileged to work within her portfolio, and and um, yeah, she's she's an amazing leader. We have yeah. many amazing leaders in Australia, and it's, yeah. um, good you stuff. Know, I've had some great mentors. So let's. Um, I, I I want to find out how Steph gets made, but do you just want to probably lead with? Um, let's put it put it. Uh, put the mystery out of it. How did you know? How, that's a, such a great honour to get. And I am like an order of Australia. Is that um, what? What was that for? And that that was a few years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. So I think it is a great honour. And of course, uh, uh, these sorts of honours, um, they're they're very humbling. And it's a privilege. Of course, they do. Um, they they tell a story of many people. You know, you you don't get one of those without recognising that there was lots of people along the way that contributed and and supported you. And certainly that was my case. I I got um, that AM in particular for the work that I've done for many years in Papua New Guinea. So I have worked um, in and around PNG for 23 years. I, I first went up there in the year. 2000 when my husband who's in the military was um, posted to Townsville and I had this great job with AusAid and I didn't want to leave because we'd been moving around a bit and so I looked at the map and I looked and was thinking which country is closest to 
um, Australia that we can catch up on long weekends. And it was Papua New Guinea. So two little kids at the time and we packed up and um, went off to, to Papua New Guinea. And it was just such an incredible experience, such an incredible country. And um, I really just just fell in love with it. So I've I've worked in and out of PNG since. So I was there with the then Ausaid um, in from from 2000 to 2002, and then I went back again and headed up our development cooperation program in 2009. Was there for a few years, and then I left at that stage um, and had a great opportunity to work a little while in philanthropy, but then went back into the private sector in Papua New Guinea, and I. Um, headed up a foundation up there that was I had the absolute privilege to actually start the foundation um, from scratch pretty much it had been doing some work in health this company and we we basically merged into a foundation which looked at education um, health and violence against women and girls um, in particular and at the same time I got very involved in in that sector and worked um to be part of the first the first um case management kind of formal case management services yeah. in png so family png as well so was able to really be involved in the creation of a new ngo that looked at case management for those experiencing survivors of family and sexual violence in papua new guinea and whilst i was up there as well i then helped in the health sector to first ensure that um, health services in a province that had been through a pretty rough time um, and their their health services were in trouble to help to create kind of a new model around a provincial health authority um, that was established and then moved on and became the chair of the board of a, a of PNG's kind of third largest province's health services and did that for a number of years. So I've had this incredible experience and then went back up there and worked during COVID as well. But I've had this incredible experience and opportunity to really be engaged in some really exciting public-private partnerships that um have um, collectively with many other people, I think, have helped to really um, deliver services to lots of people. So I, I think that it was in recognition of that, but of course, with many, many other people, yeah. um, wow. there was many partners involved in that and um, have done you know, a range of things then in Papua New Guinea in that space and have really learned so much from that experience. And now it's just great to bring that back into my role now, having that perspective from you know, the private sector, um, working inside of the PNG government system, working inside the Australian government system, and also um, working within the NGO space and community space to bring that together to look now at gender equality through those various lenses. So I I thank um, many times over that incredible experience I've had in Papua New Guinea, which has really served me well um, in, in lots of different things that I'm doing. Wow. Well, over to you. Um, that's I think that's really set the scene. Your ex- explanation of of what you do for um, the, as ambassador for gender equality, and and then your the history behind your AM in Papua New Guinea. Over to you. How does um, Steph get made? In, get made. Yeah. How how do you like your the story you're telling is just simply astounding, really. Um, and you make it sound so simple, but going up into Papua New Guinea, because I've, I've done the Kokoda track with my son. Mm, um, uh, and um, with a guy that's done over 130 treks up there now. So, um, 
I kind of get how difficult it is up there. So for you to call that place a home and, and mm. actually make progress, that's that will be hugely challenging. So um, and rewarding. Where do you want to start? How does mm. how does Steph get made? Yeah, well, again, I'll go back to Alaska because I think those formative years. So I, you know, when I tell people working in PNG is really kind of reminds me of Alaska. They look at me like I'm mad because, of course, I grew up dealing with winters of 40 below zero. And But I, I lived when we first, you know, kind of my parents first built a house. We had to haul all our water. We luckily had electricity, but a lot of um, my friends' families still had old, you know, outhouses and no electricity. And it was really, you know, it could be pretty rough living up there. Um, mm-hmm. And I grew up where mentioned before my dad was a bush pilot because with his work he was a criminologist but he did a lot of work and um with the indigenous population up there so to be able to do his work he had to fly a plane so kind of grew up going in and out of these really small communities um and really engaging with different cultures and different issues and um that remoteness and the you know, challenges with things like distance and weather and and that sort of thing. And also really growing up in an environment where there were a lot of challenges. So Alaska has twice the right to violence against women than the rest of the United States, um, six times the rate of child abuse. So there's a lot of social issues up there. But at the same time, you have to have community to survive. You have to work together in those really extreme environments. So that that community that I was part of growing up. So I think that really... Um, for me, that those foundational values were built there and knowledge of how tough life could be, but how important community was as well. So when I went to PNG, I think that experience for me, um, it, it really did feel a bit like home um, mm. in a funny way. So I really, I could just, you know, recognise um, both the challenges as well as the opportunities in Papua New Guinea from my childhood. Um, and... I think learning, you know, but the value system that I learned, I was really lucky to have, you know, wonderful parents and a wonderful family. But it, um, I really believe that bringing, growing up in Alaska and and that um, childhood with me to my work now and what I have valued in my life now as well um, really strongly reflects that childhood. Okay, that's that's. It says a lot. So, where do you want to go? Do you want to do you want to talk about like you kind of talked about uh, your different university mm-hmm. opportunities, and then England, and then I think somewhere in between England and Australia. I know England's mm-hmm. straight to Australia. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that, or do you want to talk? Mm-hmm. You, you, this is where where do you want to go? Um, okay. Well, so maybe how did I get from um, Alaska? Yes, yeah. Australia Public University. I um, went to graduate school in the UK um, at Cambridge, and I, I think I, I mentioned before I studied the theory and the practice of international relations. So I met this Aussie bloke, and um, at the end of my time there, it was you know one of those things: do I go back to the states? And he goes back to Australia, and we never see each other. We did try that because I was doing a PhD at Columbia in yeah. New York City, and um, so I did go back to my PhD and. Um, we're both pretty miserable, so I literally made this decision I'm in my early 20s. Um, I think this is someone I want to be with. And so I made a decision um, 
three days later, dropped out of a five-year fellowship to a PhD at Columbia, wow, moved back deal. to um, England, went back to England. He was still there. Um, and about two weeks later, we were married. And then I found wow. myself living in Perth, Western Australia. Wow. And, and I then arrived having married this man in the military, which I had met as a student, not quite understanding. You know, I'd, I'd studied the Cold War, but that was about all I knew about the military. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so we arrived in in Perth, Western Australia, and I think we arrived on a Sunday. On a Monday, he went to work, and then I realised, oh wow, you travel your way quite a bit when you're when you're <laughs> in the military. And uh, so he he kind of came and went a bit, and I um, got my first job with with the Australian Red Cross and did international humanitarian law, which was great. Um, okay. And then we went, as you do in the military, we went from Perth to she was in at Queenscliff and Staff College then when it was at Victoria and I taught at Deakin University for a little while in international development, international relations um, and then we moved to Canberra and that's when I got into AusAid and um, and then, you know, rest is history as I mentioned when he got posted to Townsville I went to P&G and mm. so we've had this very um, wonderful marriage, in fact on the 6th of November it's 30 years so this wow. nice wonderful yeah. long long yeah. marriage um but we've spent about half of it in in two separate countries because i've had two posting or three postings to pop in again if you count the private sector experience and one posting to fiji i went there as well and then he's been you know various places so we've kind of centered around canberra and we've rotated around that but have flowed in and out and well it's worked well with us because 30 years later um he's still my my best friend and um, my husband and I love him very much and we're still married and happy and, you know, it's worked for us. So, yeah. So you kind of led, uh, let's, I, I, not every guest goes here, but um, quite often the the ones that, are, that I find have the best story to tell have gone where you've gone. Um, so you talked about uh, for a family and a community, a nation and uh, where the home uh, maximizes its potential because there is gender equality mm, and shared. Right. So, so you guys uh, poles apart, like your PhD and international law, and he's back in Perth. Um, he's, it sounds like officer stat, officer level in the well, defence forces. Is he? He's he's actually now chief of the defence force. So oh my god! Okay. So Angus Campbell is my husband. Yeah. Wow. Um, so yeah, we've um. So yes. Wow. Um, oh god. So we met in, um, yeah, so we've kind of had a really, well, it's it's interesting. You go back to gender equality. I mean, there's no way I would be where I am now. And just I don't think if you were here without, without you know, we've, we've been had a strong partnership, but we've had to have kind of that equality in our relationship to say, I'm going to support you, Steph. Like, it wasn't easy for him. Like, I took the kids one off to Papua New Guinea, right? And he really supported me at every stage of my career and made it possible for me to have a career. And, you know, when you're in when you're in this field, you do need to go and have postings overseas. You need to have that backing. And so we managed these dual careers with both of us needing to be overseas at any one time. And he was just throughout all of that incredibly supportive. Um, do you want to describe yeah. that? Well, one of my guests talked about... Um, a lady called Rebecca Pinkstone, if you ever want to listen to her interview. She, her husband, she's CEO of uh, Bridge Housing um, mm -hmm. and, and they made the deal where her husband became a primary teacher, primary mm. school teacher, so that they yep. can uh, mirror each other's responsibilities. Yep. 
do you, you don't have to go here, but do you want to give an example where you and your husband, Angus, <laughs> um, actually had the discussion to make it work? Yeah. No. I, well, I think the first the first really significant discussion we had to have. So we had, I think my kids at that stage were three and five. Um, to say when I started in Oz and my son was in nappies, he's now a colleague at DFATS. That puts a little bit yeah. of age on me. But, yeah. um, but you know, our, our kids were little. And when he got this posting to Townsville, you know, he was going over um, as a unit commander. This into So for him to progress in the military, he had to do that. And if I was going to progress in my career, I couldn't kind of take that time off and go to Townsville and then who would know where I went go after that or after that. And again, we'd just been living in Perth for two years and then we were in Victoria for a year and we finally get to Canberra, I finally get this job that is using my skills. You know, I've so I'm I'm really we're really torn. So we did sit down and say, what are we going to do? And that's where we agreed that, you know, if I went to Papua New Guinea, we could see each other as much as possible um and it was a hard decision because mm. you know nothing in life's perfect and there's always an opportunity cost and that was a pretty big one um but we we did decide to do that so i i did go to png he did go to townsville and we just made it work i mean these were the days before it was just telephone there weren't even mobile phones i remember he was in timor and he he called you know, on the one time he could get to a satellite phone and I was in a meeting and I missed it. <laughs> I had to wait another two weeks for him to call again. You know, it wasn't easy in those days. Um, but we just made it work. And um, and when he was back in Townsville, he used to call at night and read the kids' um, stories yeah. over the phone, you know, like we'd do all that. Um, it would have been much easier with with what all the technology we have now, but this was in, you know, early 2000s. We didn't have all that technology. So... We just really made an effort to make it, make it work. We made an effort to really, you know, communicate. Um, we have a really strong relationship, so I think that basis was important. But it wasn't easy. So we did that, and I went to PNG. Then we came back to Canberra, um, and then I got an opportunity again to go to Fiji and head up our post there, our, our Pacific, so it was the bilateral post to our bilateral programs to Fiji and Tuvalu and then our Pacific region. So it was this incredible opportunity. And again, he was incredible because he thought you really need to do this for your career. Like, so was that choice? Does he give up his job and come with me? No. Do I, you know, stay here and not take it? It was hard. So we agreed at that stage. My parents would come from Alaska and stay with me in Fiji. So we'd have the kids. And again, he called every night and got over as much as he could. And we did that back and forth. So we've just had to kind of take it every step to say, at any one point of time, how are we going to manage this? But I can guarantee you there's no way I'd be sitting here talking to you in this role had I not had, you know, a, a partner who really got these are the sacrifices we have to make as a family for us both to have active careers. Um, and it wasn't easy. And, you know, I, I think we just had to make it work and had to kind of do as much as we could to protect the kids through that as well, that they still had that sense of both parents and so him calling in and then again my parents coming out. So my son had a really wow. has a really strong relationship with my father. And yeah. um, you know, he, um so yeah, it was um it was a different a different way to do it, but we've you know, uh, it worked for us. It doesn't work in every circumstance, but yeah. Whatever. 
I never. What I, what I love about these um, interviews with leaders such as yourself, you never know where it's going to go. Um, <laughs> uh, but I love your story. It's just magnificent, actually. And hats off to you and your husband Angus. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I had no. I had no clue. Um, that part of your history. <laughs> so, um, uh, and one, one thing I find amazing is um, you must have really been in love to give up your PhD because P a PhD is, is a big deal. Uh, yeah, to... and, you know, I had a five-year fellowship to do a PhD at Columbia, so it was a big decision on the one hand, but I was 25 on the other. And so you think, you know, at that age, it's just kind of like, well, this is life's an adventure. And so it was, it was a quick decision and it ended up being, you know, a good decision. Um, but it just felt right at the time. So there it was. Yeah, I threw in the tail on a five-year five fellowship to do a PhD at Columbia. <laughs> and, you um, did, and you're married two weeks later, I think you said that. So oh, yeah. A, no, no, no. It was quick. <laughs> yeah, no, I kind of made a decision and ran with it. So, um, But, yeah, it's a, and, and I haven't looked back. Like, I've had the most fantastic life and the most fantastic partner. So yeah. between that, it's, you know, I, I have – Absolutely no complaints and two fantastic kids as well. So it's yeah. um So yeah. you said your son works with you in DFAT. What's your well, yeah, my son's a colleague. He's in the India bilateral program and my daughter oh, is an yeah. occupational therapist in Melbourne at the hospital wow. in Melbourne. Yeah. They're um, they're amazing to see what they do too. Occupational yeah. therapists in how they help people at the worst, most challenging yeah, time. So no, she well, loves it. She she works in the mental health space, so did my hats off to her, but she does she's um yeah, she's a special person. Mm. Well done. Well, you take me, take our listeners wherever you want. Like, what, what's we? We haven't got you for an hour and a half. Or do you want to just take us um, to a couple of your postings mm -hmm. or a couple of your leadership experiences where your your built experience, I suppose. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Let me just, I'll, I'll give you some of those that, you know, kind of those really formative experience. Here's, here's one. So I'm in Papua New Guinea um, and my role up there, I, I came in to work in um, the resource sector in that I helped the resource community ensure that their funding was going towards communities. And so I, I had this incredible opportunity where um, I, I think I was basically given $100 million to set up a foundation and was told my my key role was to make a difference. So I had to make a difference um, and report that to a board. And if I could show how we were tracking and having actual impact, then, um, you know, I'd still have a job. And if I couldn't, I want it. So it was, yeah. you know, down to, you know, working in the private sector can be pretty interesting. So had the opportunity to do that. But as we were starting to set up this new foundation. Um, the the major hospital in a province in Papua New Guinea was really on the verge of collapse because the the PNG government was moving from a, a, a to a new system of where they had kind of provincial hospitals to what they're calling provincial health authorities. Um, and at the same time, I was working in a province that had been part of another province but had broken away into an independent province and. For all these reasons, and they had also had a key donor at the time, and that donor, um, for for all the really good reasons, was it was time for them to go um, and do other things. And it wasn't a, sorry, it was a um, multinational organisation that was supporting them. And so they were gave them a, a good timeline to pull out and go do other things, and taking the fact that the hospital was getting all this extra money. But the challenge was that it was just in a space it was really hard to get 
doctors, it was really hard to get kind of financial capacity um, and the hospital and the whole health system in this province was on the verge of collapse. Um, and the company I worked for in terms of a shared value proposition, a lot of those people from that province would be demanding health services from the company. So we needed to do something about it. And it felt like a fairly impossible situation. But my this the CEO at the time, managing director, said, you know, he, he basically called me in and said, we have to fix this. This province absolutely has to have effective health services. Um, we don't have a CEO. We don't have doctors. Um, we have 13.5 million um, budget increase out of, you know, so that's pretty budget increase when it was 600,000, I think. Um, but we don't have a single finance person. Um, there's no running water in the hospital. Um, there's no kind of medical, pharmaceutical supply. But I just have a few words to say to you, Steph. Failure is not an option. <laughs> and I thought, okay. Um, and literally, you know, this was in a province that was susceptible to natural disasters, earthquakes, subsequently. It was susceptible to trouble fighting and a lot of issues. But yeah. So I just kind of thought, how are we going to make this work? And, you know, the first thing you do is get your team around you. So I found the absolute best people I could find to work with me. Um, and the second thing was really how are we going to get, first of all, a governance structure in place that is going to ensure that the um, the the board structure is one that can make and, and enforce transparent, you know, and accountable decision-making and policies and expenditure and whatnot. So we worked hard to get, a proper board structure and to get you know all the kind of policies and procedures and the board set up and then very quickly look to set up a management team with finding the best people we could find it was really challenging because it's really hard to get doctors particularly at this time mm. um into these remote areas and so early on we had to work with um um vsa from the uk and they brought in volunteer doctors initially um, so we brought in, we worked with them and we just decided through the process, we decided a few things early on. One, we absolutely had to work through government systems. We couldn't have a standalone hospital. It had to be through government systems um, with government funding that was supplemented. And two, we absolutely had to work in a partnership approach and, and of course, three and which was actually one, we had to have really strong governance so that every single, in this case, Toya, which is the PNG currency that came to us was directed towards service delivery. So we developed a, a strategy collectively um, that was earned by the PNG government um, and worked through PNG government systems. And then we just brought as many partners who, as possible who had a, a shared interest and stake in the game and making this health system work. So um, there were those in the resource sector that needed a functioning health system um, for their, their workforce and for the population who would otherwise be demanding health services for them. There, of course, was the government of Papua New Guinea. There were donors who had an interest. So um, the Australian government, um, the, the UN system, um, a few, few other donors who had development partners who had interest in in health system um and um there was the community of course and others so in the private uh, so the private sector so we brought everyone had an interest around the table to see what and how they could do it whether it was donating money or building infrastructure or supporting us with with um technical assistance etc um and we leveraged around oh kind of probably well if you take 
the PNG government on, on board, it was it was tens of millions of dollars. If you just looked at what we leveraged without the PNG government, I think we leveraged around $20 million that came in and, and basically set up this hospital system. So we, we went from what was one of the worst performing health systems in the country to one of the best performing health systems in the country in terms of health indicators reported through the PNG government system. And we did that through strong governments, strong partnership and strong leadership and management. And I think that just for me was such a good lesson about how you work in partnership and really impossible environments to to get things done. So um, that that was a super informative experience for me and one that I've really taken with me and and, you know, everything that I've done since. Okay. Do you want to, um, is there any way you can, because I love what you said, it's quite quite a lot of leaders like yourself say, surrounded myself with the best people um, to see how we could get something done, get it done, because failure wasn't an option. Can you give a story about um, the local team where you, where you, they're mainly locals, yeah. Yeah. So do you want to say, can you give an example where, someone started at one level, but because of the opportunity and trust you gave and empowered them, what what ended up happening? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, across the board, I think everyone, when you have an environment like that, where you have a kind of vacuum, everything's an opportunity, right, to kind of step in and make something bigger. Um, And I think, you know, at every level. So the other thing that I really... um, really was a, a principle of everything is the more um we use Papua New Guineans who understood the challenges and the problems and the culture and the solutions and the more that was homegrown through Papua New Guineans and in fact through the the local people there, the better the result was going to be. So it and and again like any leadership it's it's setting that vision you know what i learned way back when i was a kid Mm. it's setting that vision and then inspiring people to work towards that vision and in this sense it was you know we had a great sense of urgency and we also had you know if we didn't get this done people were going to die right like quite literally if we didn't get a surgeon in an environment where we had high number of women dying in childbirth because they couldn't access the cesareans or High levels of, of trauma injuries due to trouble fighting when people were going to die. Yeah. So with that behind us, it gave people this real momentum to step up into roles that may not have, you know, may have initially been a little bit uncomfortable or to take risks because if they didn't take those risks, the consequences were so great. Um, and then providing people with that um environment where they could take risk understanding that you know there would be aspects where we didn't get it right and that was okay because we were moving forward and doing things better and to have that really um permissive environment for failure um across the board where people could you know take those risks across in a in a culturally appropriate way and i often in that environment as i said it would use a good old alaskan analogy of skiing but you know when you learn to ski you um it, it's hard so you you first time you go down the hill learning to ski you fall on your butt 100 times going the hill it hurts it's embarrassing you know you get to the bottom and you're a bit sore and you have to get back up that hill and do it again and again and again and eventually you can go down the, the mountain with a bit of style you're still mm-hmm. going to occasionally fall it's still going to occasionally be embarrassing it's still going to occasionally hurt but you can get it you know down with a bit of style and that's the time you go to the next challenge and the bigger mountain and you know 
at a at a black diamond tote. So in a way, it, it was just kind of creating that environment. We are going to fall down. We are going to make mistakes. It is going to hurt. Um, at times, you know, other people might not be very happy with this. That's okay because we're moving forward and we're going to learn and do that together. And I think by creating that environment um, in a way, again, that was a very Papua New Guinean way, um, we were able to really give people across the board opportunities to step up into roles that they may not have, um, you know, naturally put their hand up for or, or had the opportunity to do. So I remember bringing in a really young um, man in this case who was quite junior in HR and um, stepping into to quite a senior role that's surrounding him with a lot of support, a lot of help. And in fact, I went back to this hospital um, about a year ago and he was still there and came and, and you know, thanked me for this incredible opportunity that he had in that development wow. early on and that mentorship and that leadership and the fact that he's still there and still contributing. You know, I saw a few junior doctors really step in and, and grow in such a you know, amazing, incredible way with some of these experiences that um, were pretty scary at first because of the, the pressure to just get all this right, but but able to step in and then step out and grow. So, I mean, I, I, I just saw that countless, countless times um, and giving people the confidence to make mistakes, to learn from mistakes, to grow, um, and that support and, and that learning environment, I think it works every time, really. I have, it's totally, um, I love what, I love those interviews because it's, you, you're, we've never met each other before we started. So no. you're just, if, if I could script a guest on the show, to say how to lead, you just said it. <laughs> but, uh, per permissive, permissiveness to fail. We are going to fail, but we're moving forward together. I support you. I'm going to give you opportunities. I'm going to surround you with people with lots of support and help, and you see them grow, um, and you see people grow in confidence because of that leadership style. That's yeah. just magical. Absolutely and if you don't magical. fall down, you're never going to get up again. You need if you don't fall down, you're not going to grow. You're not going to learn. Like it's just, I love that skiing analogy for that reason. You're going to yeah. have to have a bumpy first few guys. It's you're not going to be perfect at the beginning ever, you know. And so that's that's how you grow, and you have to take measured risk and be supported to do that. Um, yeah. That's really, really, really important. Measured risk and supported it. And you started this um, interview by saying. You're a natural born storyteller, so the, you just went to <laughs> you just went to the story straight away, and uh, and we all get it. We all uh, it's such such a simple way of doing it. Well, um, you kind of just nailed it with that example. Really, is is how much longer have you got with us? Can uh, a few more minutes here. So, so uh, I, I could ask you to maybe describe one more opportunity, one more um, story like that. Or if you're short of time, I could just take you to the kind of the closing things. If um, mm. if someone wanted to lead a gender equality life, such mm. as you and your husband Angus have lived, mm. um, and create the opportunities that you have in particular uh, in your own leadership journey, what would your advice to them be? Because you're, what, what I love about your story is is what your what you are the ambassador for Australia for gender equality is the way you live your life, essentially. Yeah. So, so, so it's easy to to show it. Um, what would your advice be to someone yeah. starting out on this journey? 
So I think across the board, starting this journey, the middle of the journey, at the end of the journey, the first thing is, and I, I again love this analogy, when you get on an airplane, you sit down and um, the um, flight attendant says, put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others. And that's the first thing I have to say always and never apologize for it. Put your own oxygen mask on first, because unless you are are healthy, unless you are rested, unless you are taking care of yourself, you can't you can't help anyone else. Right. Um, and that's just so, so, so important that self-care, understanding, you know, where your limits are, ensuring you're taking your holidays, ensuring that you are um that you are focusing on a life that has many parts that serve you um, in terms of, you know, your education, in terms of your community, in terms of what you do with your hobbies, in terms of getting exercise, in terms of spending time with your family, in terms of engaging at work. There's well-rounded lives. Take care of yourself and have that well-rounded life and everything will work better. And I think that that for me has been a, a lesson learned through life um and it's a really important one and so now for me i i think we were talking before i mean my self-care i surround myself with with animals when i'm when i'm home my other passion is wildlife so i um am a an act wildlife um volunteer i rescue animals i take care of them I'm a little bird sitting here tripping in the background over here um and for me that's just where i i get a lot of energy and and passion and and feel like I'm kind of giving back to to my environment in a way that makes me feel good. Um, I I exercise every day and and that's been really important to me, making sure that you know I have quality time to spend with my my family and my kids. But really prioritizing those things, really taking care, really understanding self care, you know, talking to people when it gets a bit hard, sharing the load, etc. So 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 important in everything that you do. So that that's the first thing. Um, the second thing that for me, you know, to and, and these are just more general, you know, it's not gender equality per se, but it's really that skill of it's that skill of deep listening and it's that skill of learning how to hear and not just listen. So it's the ability to really pay attention to really look at what's going on and to really listen and hear others. And that's a skill. It's one that you really have to learn. And it's one, again, that that I've at times learned the hard way. Um, working in such a multicultural environment, particularly somewhere like Papua New Guinea, where you don't just have you know one culture in Papua New Guinea, you have 840 different language groups, a thousand different you know ethnic groups. I've learned so much from that environment, how you just go and sit and how you listen and how you understand silence and how to use it. Um, and how you understand that, you know, um, seeing things through your culture and your point of view and your value set is not not always and often not the right way. Yeah. Um, and there's other ways to to do things and to see things. And this is really important in that gender equality space, which can be so, you know, black and white for so many people. Um, it's going in and understanding what works in any one culture, you know, while at the same time understanding where your bottom lines are. You know, for me, um, I don't care any sort of cross-cultural argument. There is never, never an excuse for violence. Um, but there's different ways to look at gender equality. So I think that ability to deeply listen, deeply engage, understand how people want to identify and solve their own problems, not trying to come over the top of that, 
taking the time to do that properly um, and not rushing into it, um, working in genuine, true partnership in everything that you do um, and taking that shared approach. Again, you know, that works every time. And it's also just finding people that inspire you and and learning from them. I mean, I, I, I have a number of people that sit on my shoulder and I think about them all the time. One is this incredible woman I met um, again in, in, in Papua New Guinea, but she was a midwife in a really remote village that we went to visit. And she was working in a, a setting where she had no running water. She had no electricity. Um, she had a, a mobile phone that she would pay this person who had a generator to recharge. And she used the torch on her mobile phone to deliver babies that came every yeah. night. She was about 65 years old and she'd haul water in between, you know, from the the um, tank in between deliveries. And But every day she just got to work. She prioritised what she needed to do for her community, with her community, in a way that worked for her community with such few resources. And I just often think about her when things get tough, you know, how she kind of just managed through that in a way that um, she was able to get back to her community, but in a way that was really holistic for her as well. And I really admire her and think about her a lot. I have a lot of those women that kind of, and men, that sit on my shoulder and, and teach me things and I reflect. But I think finding those people and surrounding yourself, you know, the people that inspire you are often not the grand leaders of the world. Sometimes they are, but it's often those day-to-day people that you meet that are just doing extraordinary things. And there's so many yeah. of them. Yeah. And that's when you start to think about, you know, sometimes it gets a quite stressful in this world with climate change and conflict and, you know, all the things that we live with on a day-to-day basis when you can just think of all of these inspirational people that are doing so many amazing things, you know, the the everyday heroes to drive change, you start to realise that that it's going to be okay. We can draw on that. That's pretty beautiful. That's a great answer. So just uh, deep, uh, the first one, was uh, self care. Uh, yep. put, put the oxygen mask on first, and um, you actually said went there. Um, you kind of glossed over it a bit, but um, like you're at the pinnacle of probably what most of us would would uh, think in in a leadership role. But you talked about talking to people when it gets a bit hard. So have you mm-hmm. sought your own um, kind of uh, counsel or mental yeah. health support? Um, yeah, it's it, can I tell you that is so important, and you know, it's. I think I also observed that the more you advance in your career and the higher you get or whatever, the harder it is to kind of feel it's okay to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that saying it's lonely at the top and it's so important, you know, at that level, it's important all levels, but that ability to, you know, have permission to say, I just need to sit down and talk. I mean, I have really good friends. Um, I have a husband who, you know, I, I can sit and really lucky in that relationship to be able to, Debrief, you know, I, I bear witness to some really sad things quite quite often in what I see and what I do. And, you know, I, I visited a community a while back that had just been devastated by landslides and just swept through the village. And it was just a trauma in this community and sitting there with, it was women and children at this stage and just listening to their horrific accounts of what had happened and having to kind of think after that, you know, i got to go and take care of myself yeah, yeah, because yeah, it, the, yeah. the stories are really just you know really heavy and um being able to go and find someone just to sit down and and talk through how i was feeling and what you know some of that you know risk of vicarious trauma or whatnot it just i've learned over many years that that that's so really important i actually um studied 
more recently a master's in social work, which I I'm just completing. Yeah, yeah that and there. that's um that's taught me a lot about self care as well and how you you know social work professions really good on supervision where you you are you know engage with someone who you're you're doing that with on a day-to-day basis but I've tried to take that into everything that I do and find mechanisms to debrief um you know like I said my animals are really important to me in terms of that wildlife work that I do and just there's not much that's not better after a really good run for me too so less yeah. my shoes and off I go but yeah, I, I, I think for leaders, it's really important knowing, it's also knowing when you need that help before you kind of really need it, um, yeah. spotting some of those triggers that, yeah, I, I think I need to talk to just get this off my chest now um, before it, it adds up and compounds. And we have so many responsibilities for so many things. It's um, important to be able to do that. Well, you're very, um, I, I love how, where you've gone in this interview, because um, we don't know each other till today uh that I've, you, you've given me and and the listeners so much and thank you i really look forward to what i love about these interviews i have to listen to them several times but no, i love no. them <laughs> um, so but i love it because I, there's so much that you get out of uh, a leader such as yourself um you and i could talk we could talk for a couple of hours but i think you've given us and the listeners something quite beautiful um and a life well lived, really, yeah, the, the a life where you um, see the importance of looking after others, giving everyone an opportunity, and you start that in your own home life. So thank you, Steph, for, um, pleasure. for, for agreeing to come on the show, and thank you for what you've shared, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, and It's been lovely to meet you and lovely to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ta. Okay. Well, how good was that, everyone? Steph just has given us a lesson 101 about what gender equality is all about. And at the end of the interview, I asked Steph what would be a couple of leadership tips that she would offer to any uh, potential leader out there. And she said a lot of things along these lines. In conclusion, the journey of leadership is not a one-size-fits-all path. It starts with a fundamental principle. Put your own oxygen mask on first. Self-care is not a luxury, but a necessity. When you're healthy, rested and balanced in all aspects of your life, you become better equipped to help others. It is a universal lesson we should never apologize for. Another crucial skill in the leadership journey is deep listening. It's more than just hearing. It's about paying attention, understanding silence and respecting diverse perspectives. Learning from different cultures and finding shared approaches is essential, especially in the realm of gender equality. Lastly, surround yourself with inspiring individuals who may not be grand world leaders, but everyday heroes. Draw inspiration from those who prioritize their communities and tackle challenges with limited resources. These are the people who remind us that, despite the stresses of our world, positive change is possible when we harness the collective power of everyday heroes. Now then, if you like today's podcast, please leave a short review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you choose to get your podcast from. These reviews are influential and I suggest that you share it with anyone you know who might be curious about being a better leader. Today's show was produced by Alan Sicard. It was edited by Alan Sicard. 
and mixed by Alan Sickart. The theme music is by a musician called Savic and it is titled Legacy. I'm Alan Sickart. Thanks for listening.